0: Welcome back to our reading of Takeout. We last left our narrator hungry and in need of money, racing against the clock. And now, Chapter 3 Doom. Green lights blessed my journey all the way downtown. I had never driven so fast, never driven with such need. When I'm late for work, I tend to pray for red lights, anything harmless to prolong that dull suffering that awaits me. This drive had meaning. Time had purpose. The sun was peering over the horizon when I parked out front of Quick Job, taking in its final glimpse of my commencing actions as if it were lingering to wish me the best of luck on my efforts ahead. As I turned the car off, the dashboard clock barked at me. The takeout was surely arriving at my home that very second. Roz and Pete would soon begin arguing. My meal would watch them eating theirs, debating its fate. Chasing my shadow up the stairs to claim the day's last job, my stomach was cheering me on. Stepping through the big wooden doors of Quick Job, I was ready for anything they would give me. Let me explain this place. Quick Job was a wonderful establishment that worked as a bridge between people who needed a quick and simple job done with people who needed to make a quick and simple buck. Usually cleaning something, or picking something up, or driving someone somewhere, things like that. Sometimes I wondered if a permit or a license was needed for some of the tasks I would find myself involved in, but no one ever said anything. The place helped us party on the regular in our college days quick job was a godsend back then. And once again. While my friends prepared to chow down on their takeout treasures, I found myself battling doubt as I stopped dead to wait in a line. I wasn't the only hungry soul racing against the clock. Four people stood before me with only one teller pulling them in. The janitors were already out mopping the floors down after the day's hustle ready to get out and find their own meal, I imagined. There were nine minutes left before the buzzer blew, or in this case, it was two big red air horns that hung in the far corners of the room. They would blow at precisely eight o'clock every day, six on the weekends. With their punctual howl, the teller's windows would shut regardless, and the day's job handouts would cease. With the one teller carelessly yawning the next in line to come forward, I had begun to lose hope in enjoying my Kung Pao. I knew Pete wouldn't budge on his reasoning. He would eat my order in the morning, and he would microwave it. Not to spite me, he's just lazy. I remember watching the second hand crawl around the clock, pulling my gut with it, twisting my hunger around what felt like a wheel of spikes. It was that hollow pain that. Rumbles from the pits of your stomach and takes precedence over everything else. The inner growl for sustenance. Survival, singing out in hopes that the proverbial fat lady will hold off from her famous yell just long enough for my tongue to zap against those rich, greasy flavors. I was nervous. Hunger pains are serious pains. I could sense my meal sitting on the table unopened while Pete and Roz got heavy. The seconds flew away forever as I moved micro-nudges closer to the promised land. All I had for backup was a jar of peanut butter and an old Pop-Tart. It was one of those unfrosted strawberry ones. The most pointless of all the Pop-Tarts. I only had it because I bought one of the variety packs. I don't know why I ever buy those ones. I never eat the unfrosted tart. With two minutes till all hope was lost, I was finally summoned to the counter. I broke from the ropes like a greyhound firing out from the starter pistol onto the tracks. I stuck to the counter hard. My eyes felt like they were sunken into the back of my head from the effects of my starvation. They hung on with a desperate strain, struggling to focus on the figure of the aged woman behind the counter. put a few flies on my face and you could collect donations, claiming I was from a third world country. I'm not exaggerating. I have never been so hungry. Okay maybe I am being a little dramatic, but the craving was one of the more serious urges I have ever experienced in my life. The lady at the counter dropped over her glasses to say, I have one job left. Take it or leave it. She spoke with a tone that lacked the ability to comprehend the concept of a soul. It was a sound that came out like a pull string on a worn toy. She was holding out the job slip like it was the least important thing in the history of anything's importance. If only she knew. If only she could feel the black hole screaming out from my stomach for everything to rush inside it. I'd eat the job slip if it came to that. Dangling, unwanted in her careless, dead grip, I could hear a hum from something higher calling out from within it. My hand, struck at the job slip, with a streak of fire breathing out from my fingertips. Looking to the slip, I read the job title to myself. It whispered in my skull something ghostly. It read D-O-O-M, DOOM. The horns blew and the windows shut. Tall metal sheets unraveled from the ceiling with a loud, violent clatter. Eighteen windows crashing shut, bouncing a brooding tremor through the open chamber of QuickJob's main hall. The chandeliers above chimed with an effortless jingle, adding that final highlight to the day's end as dust floated down for the concluding swipe of the mops. The job title was an acronym. The letters stood for, Deliver Our Old Memory. The job description read as follows. We only need an evening of your time. Simply knock on our door, pretending to be Rupert D'Angelo Martin. The address is listed. Please bring a broken pocket watch that you tap periodically while whispering to yourself, Damn thing. We will compensate for the purchase of a watch if you hadn't one to begin with. Please bring receipt. When anyone asks you a question you don't know the answer to, simply say, Sorry, must have lost that one to the fungus. If anyone asks about the fungus, apologize and respond with, The fungus would prefer we didn't bring it up. Once our interaction is complete, you will be paid, in cash, the sum of $50. The job was odd, but it sounded simple enough. I hated acting, or any kind of performance for that matter. For Kung Pao, however, I was ready to suffer through it. Getting a pocket watch was going to be difficult. If you're following my story, you will remember that the reason I was going through all this trouble was because I had no money. Aside from stealing a watch, I had no idea how I was going to obtain one. The hunger told me not to worry about it. The hunger whipped my feet out the door. The hunger said we would find a watch. Job slip in hand, I drove to the nearest pawn shop without a clue as to how I was going to leave with anything. Nevertheless, there I was, getting out of my car and entering the store. I don't remember parking, or shutting the engine off, I just remember the hunger. The woman at the counter seemed deathly hungover and was slightly nodding off. She looked to be in her late forties, she was skinny. Not skin and bones skinny, but not fit either, just sort of not fat. I don't, I don't know if I'm explaining it right, not that it really matters to the story, but I did find how her mouth closed to be something worth mentioning. She had a slight underbite with an elongated lower-left canine that would catch her upper lip whenever she closed her mouth. It made her look an awful lot like a bulldog, which would in no way help her romantically. Unless, of course, she happened upon that special someone with that specific taste in women. They may very well have been at the nearest animal shelter then, holding up a little bulldog, wondering what's really missing from their life. I made my way to the counter, leaning a bit to appear level with the woman's nodding view. I gave her a wave and a smile as her eyes fluttered out of sync. Her distant state of presence faded back to earth with an odd breath. It smelled like death. I asked her about watches and she sniffed a mucus-fluffed breath as a means of response. I was pretty sure she was saying yes. She lifted the glasses hanging around her neck and placed them on her nose as she led me to the end of her counter and huffed. The counter itself was a glass case filled with items. Some of them, non-coincidentally, watches. Amongst the varying timepieces were four pocket-style watches. I pointed to the cheapest one, which was $10 more than the zero I was in possession of. My first thought was, offer my shoes. It was actually my only thought. They were two years old and in pretty good shape considering. I took them off without a second thought, put them on the counter, and said, This is all I have. My expression wasn't desperate. It was that of a child too naive for fear. I only knew this because there was a mirror behind her and I could see my face looking back at myself hungry. She gave my shoes a wide-eyed study and, to my surprise, accepted the offer. I would have given her my entire wardrobe for a chance to eat my prize. Along with this thought, my ribs started to tighten. Hunger pains are a serious pain. My stomach growled, and I left with the pocket watch, my socks slipping a bit on the cold hard floor. Thinking of the sweet tangy goodness of the Kung Pao that awaited my taste buds, I climbed inside Teddy and drove on to take care of business. I was eager. The hunger sat heavy on the gas. The drive took about 35 minutes. A strange winding road with the occasional house off in the hills, each with their own significant mailbox monster salivating at the end of their driveways. It seems a part of my brain is hardwired to thinking of bills. Every bit of light that my mind soaks in runs through the thought of monthly payments times I live I guess. I arrived at the address on my job slip. At the start of their driveway stood a tall iron gate. It was stuck open from the unmanaged growth that claimed the entrance as part of the wild. Tangled in the lively vines were some colorful orchids. It looked like a postcard, or the cover of some deep introspective underground poetic synth-driven solo indie rock LP no one with money ever heard of. One of those albums not even the artist likes once the drugs wear off. A friend buys the record along with a hit of acid from a gathering of gypsy families at a wedding being held in a booth hidden under a tent of some large hand-woven quilt at one of those huge flea markets that pops up from time to time. Those ones that make you wonder if you're actually at the dentist's office under some Anesthesia getting your wisdom teeth removed while your soul has unknowingly possessed a drunkard's blacked out body. And you're just wandering their unconscious figure around a junkyard hallucinating a use for all the trash, i.e. the assumed flea market. And your friend doesn't come back from the wedding, why would they? You tried to stop them from disappearing into their curiosity, but you have to let people do themselves what they themselves feel they ought to do. Years later, you discover that LP at a different flea market. Maybe a smaller one where you follow the uncomfortable sense of deja vu to a booth lined with records. And there is your missing friend from so long ago, holding that very LP. And your name is on the back because you were the artist who recorded it. And the cover was a picture you took mentally in a moment of hunger. Of course you buy it and get a bite to eat with your friend. Food you can bring home so the two of you can catch up and listen to the record together. It's called takeout food. Sure enough, the LP is you, and you both really like it. You and your long-lost friend. It conveyed all the feelings you remember having in your youth. You just weren't done feeling them yet, to sit back and enjoy that you understood it all. But you're probably just sitting in the dentist's chair, sort of sleeping. Dreams and layers, and of course, hunger. The fuck am I talking about? The driveway was several miles long, which allowed me to think too much about the front gate. I apologize. The place was a mansion, or an estate rather. I don't know the difference. I assume that an estate is bigger, so let's just say it was an estate because it was one of the largest homes I have ever seen. The fountain out front was almost as wide as my own home. It didn't look like it had worked in years, and I'm sure whatever sat in the dark water that bubbled up as I walked near as if to say hello, was far superior than my immune system. The estate itself was an old gothic-style structure, the sort of stone castle that allows the imagination to run wild. It was a worn grey-blue with these impossibly dark black shingles, like sharp stacks of burnt bread scaling down at an angle unclimbable by the human form, the perfect terrain for the mossy gargoyles that were perched symmetrically along the roof. Each with a different expression, each with a different hat, all of them with a cigar. The cigars were surprisingly tasteful, being what they were. I'd expect to hear of cigar-smoking gargoyles as something humorous. These were far from pleasant. They were just as haunting as any gargoyle. Time had played its role on the statues and broke away little bits here and there, making them a little less harmful. I remember wondering if they were hungry. The front of the building was met with a beautiful porch. The front door was roughly nine feet tall and wide enough for me to have driven my car through it. The door knocker rested in the middle, a fun piece of cast iron drenched in black paint hung from each door. You could lift either side to knock. I chose both. Two solid thuds, and the door opened a few minutes later with the presence of an outrageous and confident woman. If only I knew then what I know now. I'd like to think if I wasn't so hungry, I would have sensed the importance of turning around. But who knows, my intuition might not be what I like to believe it is. Swinging the door open, the woman stood like she had rehearsed the greeting for most of her life. She was tall with big balloon hips. She was like a real-life cartoon. Her proportions were wildly unnatural. Her dress was extravagant, black with a few white abstractly placed stripes. Her belt highlighted her hips' drastic shift in direction, long legs and long arms that moved with a powerful sense of entitlement. Her hair was a thick blonde forest, sprouting out in a poof running back into a fluffy tail. Her makeup was thick, dark green eyeshadow, black lipstick, a healthy amount of rouge, comparatively. All sealed in with eyelashes with a defense plan, like beautiful Venus flytraps lowering in their prey with big doughy brown eyes. Her nose was pointy and pursed up, dragging her posture with it. She pushed her chest out, her dress cut in a little for the sake of cleavage. All of this was tied together with a long, slender ivory cigarette holder, gripping a loose and groovy joint. I hadn't smelled marijuana in a while, but it's hard to mistake. She spoke up just as she stopped the door from swinging. She spoke loud and erect. She spoke with an accent. Aimlessly snobby and English, it added to the Lapoon feel of her cartoon-bleached appearance. I don't usually answer my own door, but my butler is older than death itself. You'd be waiting all day if I left these things for him. I would fire him, but I don't think the words would register with him until long after I perish from this strange place. God forbid, when the words, you're fired, finally did process in his dusty mind, he might panic and jump into the pool to put the fire out. If he could find the pool, I know his brittle bones wouldn't manage to keep himself afloat. And with me long gone, well, there would be no one around to find his body. And everyone deserves a proper burial. I don't care how nasty you are in this life, with no rhyme or reason whose fault is anything, really. Not that I agree with the acts of the wicked. But you get where I'm going with this, don't you, darling? We pay people to answer the door around here, you see. Taking a tired drag from her fancy joint, she studied my presence, her gaze stopping awkwardly at my shoeless feet. My socks were old. My big toe was exposed and gave her a wave as I held out my hungry hand and got right to business. I'm Rupert D'Angelo Martin, I told her, with a timid gulp. With my greeting, she smiled, meeting my hand with a dainty squeeze and a pleased tone to her voice as she immediately joined me for the act, saying, Of course you are, darling. You don't think I wouldn't know my own brother? It's been too long, love. Please come in. We were just about to sit down for dinner. Kissing my cheeks, she pulled me in with a startling strength. I fought my hesitation remembering my takeout prize. Once inside, she handed me a small box and pointed me up the stairs. You'll want to go to your room and and change for the occasion, of course. Your favorite dressings are laid out where you left them. You remember, darling. Second door on the left. Charlie will see to you outside your room when you're ready, and he'll bring you to the dining room. She paused and gave me a long look. It made me uncomfortable. There was something she wanted to say that seemed to alter the air in the large foyer. A smile fought its way through what was almost tears, and she spoke up through a nervous frog in her throat. So nice to have you back, Rupert. You were always the voice of reason in our lives. Off she walked, puffing away her special cigarette. Up ahead was the butler she spoke of slowly struggling his way towards the main door at a speed that suggested his movement could very well be an illusion. Someone's at the door, madam. I'll be with you in a minute. His voice was soft and straining. My pretend sister continued past him, rolling her eyes and waving him away, saying, Good luck with that, butler. My, 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 what an evening our narrator has found themselves a part of. I do hope things work out for them. This meal we keep hearing of sounds divine. Until the next chapter, farewell, listeners.